Welcome back to the Focus Compounding Podcast. How is everyone doing out there? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in with us here today. Jeff Gannon, how's it going over there across this table? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic. And as always, we hope it's going fantastic for everybody else. And you are uh, listening to this and are having a great start to your day, a great end to your day, wherever you are in the world. Um, Before we jump in it, of course, if you do want to get access to our investing idea website where other people contribute to ideas there's memos um on there that jeff has written in the past the mm-hmm. one you wrote last week was outperformance anxiety mm-hmm. uh, it's a great memo that is on there and just had uh, access to a bunch of other ideas go to focuscompound.com and if you do sign up use the podcast promo code which is podcast and i'll take some money off of the monthly price indefinitely so from last week we talked about our real life investing checklist. Right. Right. And it was kind of more of a, um, we didn't really go into like, I guess, thinking about like the business itself. It was more of like the legwork that we do mm-hmm. and like a lot of like financials and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of people liked it. So I thought for this one, we're going to call this our investing checklist part two. Okay. <laughs> okay. What we're going to do is actually go over a checklist that we have that pretty much helps us think about like the overall business qualities and stuff of that regard. So instead of just like, oh, go get the debt to EBITDA for the past 10 years or the past 10 years of financials or whatever from the past um, checklist, this is more, I guess, in depth, I guess you could say. Sure. And, Going pa- you know, beyond the 10K. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think the last format that we had was great. So I'm just going to sort of read off of it and we could just sort of chat about it. And again, this will be in the show notes and this is my notes. So I really haven't like read through and proofread them. And I mean, this is just kind of like mm-hmm. notes that I've used. So uh, take that into consideration. Uh, but this is structured behind the way that you guys wrote your singular diligence reports, right? Right. right. So on the website there, the Focus Combating website, there's probably about two dozen reports on individual companies and they're long reports. They're probably about 10,000 words and about 1,000 to 1,500 words are on each of these categories. Yeah. Yeah. And what I thought was pretty interesting, okay, because like the categories we're going to go over is like overview, durability, moat, quality, capital allocation, growth, misjudgment, and conclusion. Mm-hmm. And when we originally were making this checklist, you wanted to keep it in this order right. because you said, um, and I remember you said, it, you're like, if there's no, if the business isn't durable in any way, it's probably not going to have some sort of moat. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't have a moat and it's not durable, then it doesn't even make sense to think about like the quality of the business. Like you should just right. stop right there and kind of move on. Mm-hmm. Right. You sort of have to answer those questions first. Uh, whereas at the bottom of the list, you see questions that you might still want to buy the stock uh, depending on like misjudgment. There may always be things that you're misjudging, right? Mm-hmm. But durability, if you're really not sure about the durability of the business, well, then you probably don't. Uh, want to invest in that business right? yeah sure cool so and this also is a good checklist for writing investing ideas yep. right as well mm-hmm. so that is good so for the first one for overview this is just getting an overview of the business right mm-hmm. um so like reading the 10k kind of learning about it what is the business what units make up the business what products do they have who are the customers where do they operate geographically recent events for example mm-hmm. like was it a spinoff is the stock down 50% over the past couple of years, you know, why are we looking at this? Right. Um, you know, like who's their biggest customer, who's their biggest supplier. So it's really just learning a lot about the actual business. Right. Just describe the business. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, which is obviously pretty self-explanatory and that sort of, a lot of that I think comes from the other investing checklist we used, which was sort of, you know, reading a lot within the 10 K mm-hmm. and sort of thing about that way. Um, so for the next one is durability, right? You know, so we have, 
some thoughts or questions that people could think about. You know, is the product durable? Have the companies always existed? Have there been any changes or challenges before? What's it based on? Um, you know, but really think about why is it going to continue in the future? Exactly. Is it a fad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talked about that. We had Vetlon, and he talked about Entercom. We talked about GameStop. Those are good examples where the people are shorting and think that the business isn't durable, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where the big issue is with those stocks. That's where the big uh, discussion is, is in durability. Sure, and we always talk about, think about what a business will look like in five years. Right. So obviously, you want a business that's going to be around in five years. Mm-hmm. You know, But I think that's that's some pretty good things to think through. Do you have any other thing to add to durability? No, that, that's a key question, though, and the durability of the business versus the durability of, you know, um, the product that it's involved in doing, right? So a lot of times people may define it um, a little broadly in terms of what it does so that, you know, um, a good example would be uh, we've looked at some companies that uh, they're like a key uh, supplier of something in, in the supply chain there, but there are ways to – there are technologies that could work around that. Right, so it's a very specific technology. A lot of times with technology companies, you get that where um, the business will exist in some, the industry will exist in some form, but this company is doing something that's very specific technologically. And actually, that's probably why a lot of technology companies don't last as long as other kinds of companies, is because you don't realize how specific what they're doing is, and how there are other ways of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right, technology is kind of technique is what we're talking about, like something technical. And that, that's usually what we mean when you, you talk about that. So hardware companies and stuff are, are good examples of that where uh, it's easy to overstate the durability to assume it's more durable than it is when there's really another way to do the same thing. Okay, so the next one is moat. Right. Right. Um, so obviously if you think you want to think through the, uh, the durability of the business and then the next sort of big subcategory, I guess you could say, is moat. Um, you know, and, and that's thinking like, does the company have a moat? So what, what is a moat to you? Uh, a moat is, so we talked about durability, is just how durable the, the business is, the product is. Moat is really the durability of the profit, right? So is it going to earn above average uh, returns on capital? Is there some way for it to um, continue to keep away competition from eliminating it? So, um, you know, air travel, car travel, they might be durable, but there might not be a moat, right? The, mm-hmm. the profits in those industries might be really poor. And that's because they have difficulty keeping um, themselves differentiated from uh, their competitors. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And, and I have on, in my notes like, um, you know, competitive advantages. Like, where does the moat come from? And we just kind of listed off a bunch like high switching costs, patents, right. contracts, network effects, shelf space, which I thought was right. actually one that mm-hmm. I don't hear a lot of people talk about. Brands, economies of scale, logistics, sales per customer, location, 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 regulatory. Um, you know, high barriers to entries, technical skill. And one that I thought was interesting, too, was reputation. And we were mm-hmm. talking about how Apple, for example, probably can't trust, like, a company that's a startup right. to, to sort of, you know, utilize them, um, mm-hmm. you know, intellectual property. But it's just all things that, as you said, allows a company to earn some sort of high returns on capital. Yeah, exactly. Okay, next one we have is quality. Mm-hmm. And um, for this one, you want us to – we typically think about um, – you know, return on capital and how do they get that return on capital? Uh, break it, and you said to break it down. Where does it come from? Do they have a high retention rate? Again, this is just all talking yeah. about thinking about the actual business itself. Right. It's going from you often read write ups where people talk about the high return on capital of a business. Yeah. But what I want to do with that quality section always is where does that return on capital come from? So break it down. Is it turning the inventory really fast? Is it doing you know mathematically break down where it's getting the high return on capital from? And then actually connect that to some real world thing about why they're doing that, 
right? Mm-hmm. So like a good example is we did a report on a supermarket and usually right in that business, it's the, the turns. It's that they're selling their product faster. Uh, that's how they have higher returns. It's not usually margins. You know, supermarkets can't have higher, usually can't have much higher margins than each other. But what they can do is they can sell a lot more product um, given the same amount of shelf space. They can just turn the product faster. Mm-hmm. So there's some supermarkets where the product on average is sitting on those shelves for six weeks, and there's others where it's sitting there for two weeks. And so that's really driving the difference. And so it's a question of, you know, traffic per location and things like that. Um, and so you have to figure that out to understand where the quality of the business is coming from, right? Mm-hmm. So like um, Apple, you know, it would be, well, how likely is someone who already has an iPhone to keep having an iPhone, right? And how many services are they going to sell related to it? Things like that, you know, that drive uh, high returns, right? So, um, you know, it's a question of like breaking it down, like in the case of Apple, let's say. It's saying, okay, what's the gross margin on each of these things? You know, um, not just using the overall return on capital which is what you get with like a magic formula approach, right? Mm -hmm, Sure. Another thing that we have that I thought was pretty interesting, um, you know, that you talked about, can you get anything that's like ranked in the industry, like customer service awards, customer satisfaction surveys. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about, and you always do this as well, you look at Glassdoor to sort of learn about like the company culture. And yeah, what they're saying. Do you always always do that? What do you, I mean, like specifically, are you just looking to see if anything just sort of pops out as odd to you or? No, a sense of the culture. What, you know, a, a sense of, um, like, for instance, uh, we, we talked, so I wrote a report on Frost, and I like uh, Frost, which is a bank in Texas, and people asked a lot about why I liked it, and the simple fact is that um, it pay, it had more uh, accounts on which it was not paying much interest per mm-hmm. branch than um, just about any bank out there, and people asked, you know, how, how you connect that to the real world thing about the business is that they're very good at getting um, business accounts uh, in, uh, Texas and keeping them for a really long time. And those businesses grew over time and they were able to keep them. So a really high retention rate, really high, um, satisfaction for, uh, business customers that, that bank with them. And, uh, that's really the key to what they were able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and at different banks, it would be different, you know, about what, what, um, what their quality comes from. We wrote about another bank prosperity, um, which is another Texas bank has very, very low deposits per, per, uh, branch, but it has really low um, expenses, and so we talked about the CFO there and the culture of how uh, cost cutting and things like that, and and you know talked about some of those things. Um, we talked about an anecdote uh, where he would uh, go crazy about things where there was any expenses that didn't have to do with the customer, right? So if really? someone wanted to have their own letterhead and things like that, you know, they'd, he'd say you know that the customer doesn't care if you have personalized uh, letterhead <laughs> and things like that, you know. Whereas for expenses that had to do with things the customer would see a benefit from mm-hmm. they were willing to spend a lot and so there's very different cultures because you know frost there's no indication that they're a real expense conscious uh, uh penny pinching sort of a bank at all interesting interesting and then the next thing we have is look at short interest versus float read the short thesis sort mm-hmm. of to understand it which of course we talked about in the last podcast as well um you know sort of look at the high high price or low price read the customer reviews um you know to really think about what do individual individuals think of the products and then think about like how much r&d are they spending as a percentage of sales and in general and and where are they spending this r&d and you talked about reading phil fisher's 15 point checklist for yeah. quality and growth absolutely yeah and so breaking down, and when we talk about culture, figuring out things like, um, okay, is this a product-driven company? 
Is this a service driven company? Is it customer focused? Is it really sales focused? You know, and, and for different companies that you look at it, it will be very different in terms of what is driving those high returns, right? So like um, Wells Fargo got in problem, it had problems with this, but it's all about uh, the culture there is all yeah. about cross selling to the same customers, mm-hmm. right? Um, we wrote about Carmart and stuff. The, the the business there is all about the collection side of it, um, because they're they're lending to customers who are way below subprime. I mean, these are customers that most subprime lenders won't lend to, and so it's it's all about collections there and what the culture is, and you have to kind of figure that out about what what the culture is um, that way. You know, we talked about Tandy. We talked about management of each store, how good the store managers were, and things like that. Um, because it's a very niche business. So you connect those things about the culture to something that's actually determining returns, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, like uh, Apple is a good example because Apple, I would say, is a product-driven company. Sure. Right? But a lot of companies that you'll look at, it's not about having the best product. Uh, That's not the key concern. Um, And there's plenty of industries where the company that has the best product is not the one that's likely to, to win. If they have a product that's good enough, and they always have it on time and at a good price and have all the customer service that the customer needs um, to avoid any disruption and things like that, often it's not about having the best product in, in those things. And I can think of lots of industries where um, the company is high quality, but it's not that the quality of the product is that high. Like it's what? other aspects of the culture. Um, uh, that they have uh, really high reliability, right? That they're always on time, mm-hmm. uh, so deliveries are always on time. Uh, projects always uh, can be depended on. There, we did a bunch of companies reports on them, where they work um, with other companies on on projects. So they're part of their you know they're one part of a real big like mega project, right? And they're pr- providing one particular part or system or something like that. In a lot of those cases, it's you know are is this are they going to be on time? And are they going to work well with this other company? Are they going to be reliable that way? Are they going to continue to support the product for years afterwards? You know, things like that. And those are not about having technically the best product. Often someone else can make a product just as good or better. But if they're not going to deliver on time, if they're not going to have the support that you need for it, all sorts of things that could go wrong. It's more about having perfect reliability than anything else. Cool. So, so far we have overview, durability, moat, quality, and then the next one is capital allocation. Mm -hmm. So we always go over like the history of dividends, stock buybacks, stock issuance. This one was pretty interesting. The Kager and number of shares outstanding. Yeah, that's what I use. Yeah. Why is that? Just to kind of see which direction it's going. Uh, Yeah. No, when people talk about like compensation and things like that, I don't don't worry about those. I I don't do a lot of work about figuring out... um, uh, compensation and I don't include um, stock options and things like that in deducting from earnings. Actually, what because that can be misleading. Instead, what I want to know is how much of a drag are you are you going to have on your returns? So, if the company is basically tending over a long period of time to issue one percent of the company each year to employees, mm-hmm. then as a shareholder, from my view, what's happening is you're getting one percent taking off your returns. Sure, not something happening to EPS that's lowering it. That's not the correct way of looking at. It. The correct way of looking at it is they're actually diluting you by expanding the size of the number of shares out if they don't buy back, right? And so, when we write about things like Granger or Omnicom or something, we talk about how much is issued and then how much they have to buy back to buy that back, and then to also reduce the share count. And so a lot of times we talk about how much of the share count they reduce over time, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of the companies that we looked at are, are those kinds of things. We, In fact, I'd say we focus on some companies where uh, share buybacks are common and they keep reducing the share count. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
cool. Um, see how management is compensated in the proxy bonuses, um, you know, and what are the targets that make up that right, bonuses? Right, the targets are really yeah. important. Yeah. So that's, uh, you can look at this in the proxy statement and it'll give you information um, about how they're compensated, which a lot of people look at. So is it restricted stock? Do they have stock options? Do they um, have a big base salary? Do they have bonuses based on hitting certain targets? All that stuff. But what they'll actually do is they'll break down things like are they paid based on sales growth, um, net promoter score, um, return on capital, things like that. And often those give you hints about the company's real um, estimates about the future. Sure. So the company may not be providing guidance, but if they're saying that they don't pay any bonus out unless you grow 5% a year and have a 10% return on capital. Yeah, you bet they're going to want to hit that. Yeah, then you, you have a high likelihood they're going to hit that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's great. Um, how much does management own of the stock, and how significant is that to in regards to their personal salary? Right. Yep. Obviously, that's great. Um, what did they say they were going to do in the past, and um, and how did they do in the past regard mm -hmm. or relating to what they said that they were going to do? Uh, historically, what have they done with free cash flow? And you could get some of that from like obviously like transcripts and stuff like that. Obviously. Um, mm -hmm. What else do we have? And in the here? case of a spinoff, you can get it from other documents too. Um, there was a spinoff that we we're looking at recently. We we're looking at now, and uh, the top two managers opted not to take any salary and instead to get a percentage of the company, uh, which will vest over time. So that can be an indication that they uh, uh, want to get paid by the company stock going up over the next three to five years or so. Mm -hmm. right? And then this is sort of, I mean part of our checklist because we deal with the liquid stocks, but is there enough float and is the stock liquid enough? Has the company ever paid special dividends? Does the company ever acquire things? So it's pretty much just really going over the capital allocation business. Yeah, but in terms of the liquidity, that's a big issue about why a company doesn't buy back stock. Uh -huh, sure. So a lot yeah. of times people say, uh, a lot of times people complain about some of the stocks that we look at that they're not buying back stock. But realistically, because of rules that are in place um, about how they can buy back stock in the open market, and about issues about reducing the liquidity, it doesn't make sense. So the other option is to pay special dividends uh, often is a way of, of doing that. Um, and so with very small companies that we look at, usually it makes more sense for them to do something like pay a special dividend. And it's not realistic for them to buy back stock the way that a big company could. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is, um, you know, for example, like Monroe, MNRO was written mm -hmm. up on the Focus Company website. Yeah. And part of their business model is to like acquire. Right. They're still other, acquiring. Uh -huh. yeah. And um, so it's like, is their business growth through acquisitions and if so uh what type of prices do they pay do they use right. stock do they use cash etc yeah and it's important to break it down more in terms of like thinking of it from their perspective and getting a realistic view of it rather than just judging it yourself how you would do it i mentioned frost earlier frost is a really good example of that because they've made a few acquisitions and in all cases the acquisition was really good in terms of the quality of the bank they were acquiring and the culture of that bank but they were not at all careful about the price that they were paying. They would issue their own stock for it, and they would do it when the bank that they were buying um, had a price to book similar to their own. Mm -hmm. So that's not going to create shareholder value, really. But you can look at that and say, okay, well, I'm confident that they're not going to acquire things that are going to cause problems. You can see from their perspective, they're, for, they're not value investors. Mm -hmm. So their first focus is not price. Their first focus is quality and cultural fit and things sure. like that. Mm -hmm. But it, so doing that gets you a real good idea of what the future might look like for the company rather than just giving a knee-jerk reaction whether you like the price or not or something on the, on the acquisition side. So capital allocation isn't just about saying whether you like it or don't like it, but trying to see it from the perspective of management and the board and of what they're likely it. to do. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Some companies like paying a lot of regular dividends and raising them all the time. We talked about computer services. 
they've raised it 46 or years or whatever in a row. Obviously that's something that they want to do. Yeah. They wouldn't do that, you know, during the financial crisis and stuff, unless it was kind of an obsession of theirs. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Okay. So next one's value, which I guess we sort of talked about in the last one, um, the last checklist, but like what's the PE, EV to EBITDA, um, how does that compare to other companies? Mm-hmm. Um, which competitor is better? Why would a company be me- more expensive or cheaper? But again, it's thinking about the actual business instead of like, you know what I'm saying? Right. The way we do in the reports usually is um, you compare it to uh, competitors or peers of some kind. And you say, okay, well, the price of this stock is higher or lower than this competitor. How does the business compare? Yeah, does that make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not saying that this PE is 12 and the competitor is 14, but saying, okay, well, if the PE on this is 12 and the competitor is 14, is this clearly as good or better a business than the competitor? Or is there a reason why the competitor might be trading at a higher PE? Yeah. Are they better? You know, because it doesn't tell you anything if you think the higher quality is the highest quality company in the industry has the highest PE. That's not useful information. The information you want to find is like when you see one of the best companies in the industry with one of the lowest. Um, we When we did uh, Omnicom on this podcast, I mentioned that at that time, I thought Omnicom was one of the better uh, advertising agency holding companies, and yet the price to sales on it was one of the, the um, cheaper ones. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to look at. You, you don't get much out of saying, okay, well, it's the cheapest, but I also think it's not the best. Yeah, you sure. Know, so that doesn't tell you much. Mm-hmm. Um, next thing to look out for, uh, has there ever been some sort of offer for the company that was right. refused mm-hmm. or that fell apart? Yeah. This one was interesting. What would an LBL, LBO look like? Absolutely, yeah. Always do that. So Always how do you typically go through that? Uh, well, you can look at a lot of what LBOs are and what prices they, what kind of debt they would use mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. Absolutely, yeah. You can look at things in the industry. LBOs are pretty common, so it's not hard to find yeah. what it would be structured like. And especially among some very small companies, that we might look at. Um, sometimes a, an LBO could be done without putting in much money for actually having to acquire the equity. It could be done with a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's always something to keep in mind yeah. and something that people overlook. A lot of times they look at a company and they go, well, how am I ever going to get value from this? The company gets taken private. Management does a buyout of it. Someone comes in and does an LBO. That, you know, that it's, you know, we're buying companies that are not highly leveraged. But it makes a lot of sense to look at it from the perspective of an LBO because many of the things that they would be interested in in seeing in a target are exactly the same sort of things that you should want to look for. Predictable cash flow, um, a pretty clean balance sheet now, a lot of durability, a lot of you know, a lot of things that would make it easy for them to carry a lot of debt are things that would make it attractive for you in terms of producing free cash flow year after year while you own it. Mm-hmm. So definitely looking at it from the perspective of what would it look like if there was an LBO. That's a good way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what we talked about or what we talk about a lot, um, you know, what prices or like so, some multiples have acquisitions happened in the industry in the past. Yeah. You get a lot of that information from proxy statements and, you know, looking at past deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Next one is growth. This one's interesting. Um, you know, so we, we say to break down growth, like let's say, yeah. um, a company could grow 5% a year. How much of that is from like same store sales? How much is that from price increases? And right. you know, how much of that is from active users? Just really break it down the growth and see where, um, you think it's going to come from. Um, and then also break it all down by geography as well, which mm-hmm. I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and you say like, are they going to grow in Mexico, but not in the U S et cetera. And can they gain market share? Absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about uh, Cheesecake Factory in a previous podcast, and that's a really good example because that was a company that was had negative growth at the time. 
but almost all the big restaurants in the U.S. were having negative growth, and it didn't look like their negative growth was uh, any worse than other ones. So they weren't necessarily losing market share. There's no indication they were. Mm-hmm. Whereas you look at some other businesses, and you could be an internet company, you could be growing 10% a year, and you could actually have lost market share, like you know, Cars.com or something. If you grow at a uh, rate of only single digits, you're losing market share because that whole industry is growing really fast. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's interesting. And, and getting back to the cheesecake example, um, you were saying just to compare it to something that's already big, right? So if they're going to right. grow 20% a year, um, you know, per year, they'll be as big as Chili's and sort of puts it in perspective. Like, Absolutely. Always can do that, cheesecake yeah. be as big as Chili's? Yes. And then you think about that and you go, I mean, we talked about that. You go, no, that doesn't make sense. Those yeah. locations and stuff just can't be put in every, think of every little town where you've seen a Chili's. You yeah. can't put a cheesecake there so it can't get to that size. Mm-hmm. And that's common. Um, I think that's a great way to think about all sorts of chains is to try to compare And we always try to do that in reports to say, okay, because um, people often use the, the percentages and they just say, you know, uh, Netflix is growing at whatever percent. Okay. But in 10 or 15 years, what would that mean in terms of how many households in various countries would have to be Netflix um, subscribers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or is there some other way, is price increases or something, the way that they can achieve it? Because there are businesses where you don't need a lot of growth in households or something. You can get a lot uh, in terms of just um, pricing growth, right? Mm-hmm. So I, w- I talked about that in a, a blog post I did that was, I guess, kind of controversial about um, like Facebook and some of those companies saying, look, it's different if you're growing your users by 20% a year or if you're growing your ad rates by 20% a year. And they both get you to the same revenue number. But um, it's kind of like you have the same number of barrels of oil that you're producing this year, but the price of oil just went up a lot. And, you know, that's something that you want to look into because then you'd have to be very sure about what you think ad rates should be. Mm -hmm. And maybe you have good reason for believing they should go up a lot, that they're too low now. But it's just a very different bet than betting on um, more people seeing ads. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And then you say always think in terms of nominal GDP, population growth, and inflation in the country that you're or that the business operates in. And you yeah. said how much have have real sales grown? Like when you adjust for inflation, yeah. we talked about that with um, and that's some we always do. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, where it wasn't able to grow um, in terms of real sales, and we always adjust things for inflation to get an idea of that to to look back and see whether the company is really growing in, in real terms. And I talked about that also with something like like supermarkets or something over time, they're going to be a smaller and smaller part of GDP, right? People are going to spend less on food and clothing over time. So something like that can't grow as fast as the economy, whereas something like uh, advertising can grow as fast as the economy. And then there are other things that, you know, technology things and stuff that maybe will be a bigger part of the economy in the future than they are now. So those things can grow as faster, faster than nominal GDP, but you have to be realistic about that. You can't look at it and say, okay, this company, you know, um, uh, this company produces um uh you know uh twinkies or whatever that you can't believe that hostess brands um they're going to that that industry is going to grow as fast as the economy because if people get twice as rich they're not gonna buy twice as many twinkies that's not how they're gonna choose to spend that that new disposable income Mm -hmm. that's great okay and then that's that for growth misjudgments i thought was kind of fun so um you know the first thing to sort of think about is what are other people seeing on the short part of it Right. right. So mm-hmm. look, I guess that's, this kind of goes into like, what's the variant perception? What does the market think? What mm-hmm. are other people uh, sort of betting on, if you will? Um, yeah. But what can't we predict that's important to what we're doing? Right. You know, and obviously that's pretty important. And yeah. like what maybe we get wrong that our argument rests on. Yeah. And that's the important part is you have to really figure out what your argument it rests on, what it really depends on. 
so many times when I see the end of a report that someone writes about a stock, they list all these uncertainties. And uncertainties aren't risks. They're, those are two different things. So, you know, if, if your the whole thesis is not um, based on, uh, you know, being able to hit certain numbers, right? So, it, like, say, Cheesecake Factory or something, say that you're, um, it was at a price where if you bought it, if same-store sales were... Um, uh, flat, right? Mm-hmm. But they opened up enough new stores or something, you would still uh, make money, right? Then in that case, um, same store sales uh, being flat is not a risk, right? For you looking mm-hmm. at it. it, because that isn't uh, what your you know your thesis depends on. But when you look at other companies, like you look at companies with a lot of debt or something, it could very much depend on hitting very specific targets to be able to have financing and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of things that could, um, it, it depends on exactly what your argument is. Sure. But yeah. And just basically trying to figure out why the business you're looking at is cheap. Why is the opportunity there? Yeah, it is b- based on looking at what your, the opportunity is there. Um, although I think, uh, it's a question of like, um, how to put this? Um, you don't necessarily need to know why it's cheap. You just need to look at it and say what other people are going to try. People who are shorting the stock and things like that are going to try to explain why they think it's cheap, mm-hmm. right? And all you have to do is um, establish that those things d- don't mean you're not going to make money in the stock. Okay. Um, many times, the things about why it's cheap will you have to think about it logically, not emotionally. So, like uh, we talk about NACA or something. Why it's cheap? It's a coal stock. Well, that does explain why it's cheap, why people don't want to buy it. But then you have to actually run the numbers and say, okay, well then it, it, it'll st- these coal mines will start shutting down in two years or three years or five years or whatever, and see if that invalidates your your thesis, right? So it can't just be um, looking at what the crowd is thinking about it. It has to actually be saying, okay, well, do these concerns that they have uh, actually undermine my argument? And that's really where the appraisal comes into is the appraisal part is not about finding a specific number so much mm-hmm. as laying out how you get to that number. That's the really important part is the actual math of how you get to that number and what could undermine that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we have our conclusion, which we are going to mm-hmm. talk about the appraisal, but what was pretty cool was when we were talking about the conclusion, we sort of broke it down to three things. Okay. How safe is it? Yeah. How high quality is it? Right. And how cheap is it? Yeah. And I was talking about this with someone recently where they um, didn't like a stock. Mm-hmm. And they felt they weren't doing a good job of explaining why they didn't like the stock. And I said, okay, well, um, really, if you don't want to buy the stock, if you're correct in not buying the stock, it needs to fail one of those three tests. Mm-hmm. You have to have a reason for believing that it isn't all three of those things. Because if all three, I mean, go over those three things. That yeah, you exactly. And I have it right here. Yeah. Um, you should like the company if it's, yeah. it's high quality, the, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's safe and it's cheap. Right. You exactly. know, then you probably like it. But if it's, I like this company, it's high quality but there's a lot of risk in the debt, you may not like it. So it's not all three of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you shouldn't, I mean, it's prejudice and stuff like that. If, if it meets all three of those criteria and you you don't want to buy it. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of looking at saying, well, what's my real reason for not wanting to buy this stock. Right. And if it does pass those, those three things then that's fine. So it's a good way of breaking it down because otherwise you can get kind of confused in the conclusion and Mm -hmm. and not um, knowing sort of which test it fails. Right. Because if you feel uneasy about a stock, well, why do you feel uneasy about it? Is it that it's not high enough quality? Is it that it's not cheap enough? Or is it that it's not safe enough? Mm-hmm. And you can point to which one of those things is the problem. Yeah. And then we have the appraisal, which come mm-hmm. up with a, a method for, um, you know, 
appraising the company, whether that's relative or whether a private buyer would pay, et cetera, and, yeah. and valuing it that way. Yeah, and that's where we get into the part about how you frame the stock. Mm-hmm. The really important thing is looking at and deciding what number is the most useful thing there. Like, um, And it can be a number that's very different from what the market tends to use. Like I always used for something like Frost, I always used the deposits per share. That's what I always believe was most important. For CarMart, I used the receivables per share. Um, so there's lots of examples where it would be, um, and I don't see a lot of people ever value businesses like that. Right. But you want to do that because you want to look at what you think is really driving the long-term returns in the business. Right. So I th- like for NACO, I talked about, um, the, uh, tons of co- coal mined, right. So the tons of coal delivered each year, um, which, you know, is, is a way that some people value miners, but you don't normally talk about things like price to book or something like that. You try to get more into the business in, in once you understand it well and understanding what really drives the returns, mm-hmm. right? And so in their case, they basically get like a, a fee per, per ton as long because they should really basically get their costs reimbursed in the sense that it, the cost is indexing with inflation. Mm-hmm. So as long as they, they do a decent job of controlling their costs there. Um, they're basically cost plus. They make money on each ton of coal, right? So you would focus on are they growing the number of tons of coal and tons of lime rock each year and things like that rather than looking at all the other things that are moving around every year. Mm-hmm. CarMart's a good example. In the long run, what you need is receivables per share going up. Um, we talked about Greenbrick um, partners, and I think we talked. A lot, I talked a lot about the land inventory, right? So how much actual land is backing each um, share of stock that you have because – the reason for that is think about a home builder. We know that that home builder isn't going to actually pay out a lot of money to you in dividends and things like that. Sure. So what they're going to do is they're going to take the money that they earn and they're going to put it right back into more land. Yep. So that company is really always a bet on at any one moment in time. It's always balance sheet full of land in Atlanta and Dallas areas. Uh-huh. So in a sense, what you want to be looking at is how much land there is per share. You don't want to be. You can think in terms of earnings per share, but. That's a little misleading because earnings come out in different forms. Like in Omnicom, their earnings come out and they pay it in dividend or they buy, buy back their stock. They don't put it back into the business. Sure. So it's totally different than this thing that puts it right back into more land. You know, so, so you want to look at how to frame it that way. And I think that is one of the most important parts. Mm-hmm. In fact, more important than what the actual appraisal number you get is what thing are you looking at at the value. Like sure. we've talked about some stocks we have where we look at the um, – the acres, the value per acre. So how many acres of land does this stock have? And what do we think each acre is worth? And mm-hmm. that's kind of how we track the value. You need some number that moves with the business. Yeah, the EPS wouldn't really be, yeah. it wouldn't matter for that company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then the next, so that's kind of it for all that. And then this part I think is kind of fun. It's um, uh, being the journalist. Yeah. Or you, maybe you could call it being the PI. Okay. Or something like yeah, that, right? right. <laughs> um, you know, it's just kind of thinking sort of outside of the box to learn a little bit more about the businesses, right? When we were doing research on, on NACO, right. um, like a year or two ago, whatever it was, mm-hmm. we were on Google looking at satellite images, yeah, satellite on, images of yeah. like the plants and like um, yeah, the utilities the mines, that were yeah. right, the mines right. and the utilities yeah, that were right there. You can see them in the, in the pictures. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but so from right here, for on being the journalist, it says um, like just some stuff to think about. Uh, go to the proxy statement, find out who owns stock in the company, Google all their names, learn sort of a little bit about them, who they are, and just kind of, I guess, yeah, so we should talk about, talk about this more generally. So um, the thing is a lot of people look at um, a stock and base it mainly on the 10K and on other things about people who looking at the stock as a stock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that can be a little short-sighted or you can have blinders on in the sense that you're not using any data 
and any sources of information that aren't really targeted at investors and that maybe weren't that easy to find or something. So mm -hmm. a lot of times people might rely, like I can't tell you how often it is that someone says that they don't know something from reading the 10K. Yeah. And yet actually, if you read other things about the company, it's disclosed in other places. Like you go and find articles in a local paper about the company yeah. and they happily tell you what volume they're doing at that plan or whatever, but they've never disclosed it in the 10K, right? There's lots of things like that. Or they don't know anything about the management. Well, you can look up things about the management, sure. you know? Um, if they're rich people, they probably give money in their Imagine doing and, some work you know, on um, uh, Papa John's CEO. You right, exactly. probably would have learned so, a lot. Because he's, I mean, because I was reading, there's, he's had a lot of like allegations and stuff like mm -hmm. going back years. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Tons of drama with that. But, yeah. yeah. Well, when you look into a lot of these, um, we had, uh, there are a couple companies, um, that we looked at that were interesting in terms of the past history of the CEO and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, we have one company that we talked about there, which was eventually taken private, but the CEO had heavily, um, and some other public company CEOs did the same thing, but had heavily, um, bought on margin uh, using uh, company stock, right? So he had pledged as collateral a lot of st his own stock in the company. What and, company was this? Uh, this was Lifetime? Lifetime Fitness. Yeah, got it. And so when that declined, in for reasons that had really nothing to do with the company, just had to do with the general uh, economic downturn, um, then suddenly you had to sell a lot of your stock in the company, lower your percentage ownership of the company, all those things. And you can... You know, get some indications of how much risk taking there is by some people and and things like that. Uh, we there were I think two different UK companies where we dropped the company after learning a lot about a new CEO or something like that. We didn't like the CEO and read things about their past and you know mm -hmm. old articles and things like that. Yeah, interesting. Um, this one's pretty. I would like to hear your rationale behind this. Uh, get satellite images of their HQ. Yes, and you typically mm -hmm. look at that. Do you just do that just to sort of put a picture to it or? Yeah, we talk about the culture and stuff. What uh -huh. what, what town are they in? Sure. Uh, what's around it? Um, things like that. Also, just very basic things. I've had people say things about um, stocks that I research or something. Or they say, well, is this stock a fraud? Well, one of the first things is look at, find a list of all their properties and look at satellite pictures and see if it matches up to what you're expecting. Yeah. I showed you one where the people had wondered is this stock a fraud and we, you read a description of the business you look at a satellite picture of it it looks exactly like yeah. what the company says it's doing there yeah um and you know uh and and just just so people know the company will usually disclose the um town that it's in but it using google or something like that you can easily google the company's name yeah. and the town and that yeah. will give you the address mm -hmm. they don't usually put the address except for their main business address mm -hmm. in, in the 10k yeah and then you want you talk about googling um you know just about the town to learn about like the income and the major things that are there. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess that goes back to learning about with the culture. Like Glassdoor and stuff. Yeah, we talked up. about <laughs> things like, um, we talked about NACO and I looked at Glassdoor for things about NACO in the Plano area, which mm -hmm. is where, where we are. And, and where their um, North American coal businesses, their headquarters is in Ohio. But, um, and, uh, the same thing with computer services. And you got some information about, how competitive the pay was in the area and some things about the culture, whether they were kind of culture that pays a lot and is a little um, more demanding or whether it's a culture where people are saying the pay is okay. It's not great, but they're not going to get rid of you. You can stay there as long yeah. as you want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you had to look at the B better business bureau. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, let's see what else we have here. This one's obviously pretty important. Look for information about the industry group. So like timber core processors, like learn more about it. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, like what are the terms, uh, the industry terms, 
what are the descriptions of themselves and like what's the business model based around yeah, that. Yeah, I look for trade magazines that discuss it and industry um, lobbying groups and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, I mean, I wrote up U.S. Lime on the site at one point, and most of what's in that article is based on either um, industry, um, the trade organization that they have, or um, the U.S. Uh, government sources. Those are by far the that's like almost all the information that's in there is actually from those two sources. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the USGS in that case, and then the, uh, whatever the name of the, um, Lime group is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But. And then I think the next part kind of goes back to like quality or durability or whatever. Um, you know, thinking about it from like the customer standpoint, you can use TripAdvisor or, um, mm-hmm. Yelp to sort of look for reviews of what people are saying about the company. Sure. Like if you that. have something yeah. that's based on like, um, we did some things that are based on land stuff, but also if you have things that are based on, um, and lodging and restaurants and chains and things like that, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I think that's great. Cool. So I'm for everybody that is listening, I'm going to copy and paste this in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, take note that these are my notes, so they're not, um, perfectly, I guess, laid out or whatever. Uh, do you have any other thoughts or anything for people to sort of think about or add to yeah, it? Yeah, I'm wondering what you find useful about using these. Well, I mean, I think for me, it just sort of helps me think about just, it's almost like a roadmap, I think is what I told you, the way that okay. I like it. Um, you know, like when going over like, uh, like the quality and durability. And what I like about it as well is how you said if like it's in almost like chronological order where it's like if if mm-hmm. you don't think the business is durable, you probably shouldn't move on and think right. about the moat or about the quality of it mm-hmm. um, in, in that regard. But for me, it's just almost like a roadmap that I, yeah, I so like Yeah, it's like a checklist for your research process. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it helps me just sort of, I guess, make sure I think about the business from all aspects. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. It gives you a more rounded view than just looking at the 10K that some people might do without it. Yeah, because it's different because there's a lot of stuff that you could sort of, I guess when we talk about being a journalist or whatever, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that you could find out about the business that is not going to be in the SEC filings. Yeah, that's an interesting one. If you go back and read like the Snowball or something, see how much of Warren Buffett, what he's discussing about his stock, is things that wouldn't have been in the ten, it wouldn't have been in the SEC filings. Really, the annual report. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. He always knew who the people were involved. Yeah, <laughs> that was always something that he did to figure out who these people were, what their interests were, what, what their history them. was. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. that's absolutely true. How do you think you found it back in the day? Uh, many of the same ways that we find it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can use the internet now, but, yeah. um, but even then you get lots of information by talking to other people who've looked at the stock and things like that. And sure. obviously that's something that he did is talk to lots of people that way. Um, and there's some things in the, um, snowball and some things like that where they talk more specifically about that, but it's, it's not that hard. A lot of these things are, um, we're not talking about digging up secrets here. Mm-hmm. These are things that are very public. It's just that they're public about, um, like for instance, a lot of the things about people, will be things that are publicly known in the area where the business is, but aren't that publicly known to people all around the country. So, um, I mean, it's just, it's something that you see all the time. I, I talked before about investing in village supermarket. And one thing that's interesting is that it was a company that was only in New Jersey. And most people buying and selling the stock are from places that had, they'd never been to New Jersey. They'd never been to the stores and things like that. So if you're there, you have all this information that other people don't have. And it's not information that's at all secret. I was just talking to you about um, a retailer in a Scandinavian country. And we can talk to some people who are in uh, that area and who know those businesses and and know those stores the same way that we would know Walmart or something Uh like that. Right. But uh, but most people buying and selling stock who are foreigners, um, you know, don't really have any of that information. And yet it's it's public information. It's very well known by everyone there. 
and it's something that you don't have if you just read the annual reports. Mm-hmm. But it's not hard to get. I mean, if you think if you start from the question like, "Oh, I need to learn about this from people who actually shop there or something." It's pretty easy to figure out who sure. would be shopping someplace or whatever, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. and we could do that all the time with with um, different things that we research. And some it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked before about like the difficulty of researching Weight Watchers or um, Western Union or something like that because those are very specific subcultures. Where if you're someone who was born in the United States, for instance, the likelihood that you're going to use Western Union isn't very high. If um, if you're not a woman, the likelihood that you're using Weight Watchers, especially before they got big on online, is really low. Mm-hmm. And yet there's all these people who know so much about it. All you have to do is find them and talk to them about sure, it. Yeah. yeah. No, and I think it's great because you get sort of so caught up in looking at like the numbers and the SEC filings and everything like that. And this just sort of helps me just think like, actually, this, this is a real business. Mm-hmm. You're not just looking at numbers. Like, let's think about the products. Let's think yeah. about uh, the durability of those products and the true mm-hmm. you know qualities in that regard. So I think that's probably what I think I find most helpful about it. Yeah. It's connecting the numbers to like an actual business. Yeah. Like this is a real business. We're actually studying that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's driven on human emotion and yeah. What the customers think about products, et cetera, how good the employees are selling it and all those things. And those are things that you look at how, and those are sometimes you could forget that because you're just looking to it's to us. It's like numbers, right? right. You're just looking at the numbers part of it majority of the time. But that's a good reason for people to read Phil Fisher and the the 15 points that he has. Cause it's really about like, how good is that sales organization? What do customers think of this business? Things that are stuff that you would get that are away from the numbers. He was big on looking at the stuff that wasn't in the numbers. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's great. Anything else to add to nope, the topic? Yeah, I think that was great. Well, we really want to thank everybody for tuning in here with us here today. This was a longer podcast, but I think it uh, was filled with a lot of information. I am going to put this in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. Also, if you do want to join our we're distribution list of Jeff's Sunday memo, feel free to go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email. As I did say at the beginning of the show, the memo that he sent out last week was outperformance anxiety, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of us can relate to, yeah. especially when it comes to investing. And um, it was a great memo and a lot of people uh, love receiving that on Sunday. Uh, other than that, thank you very much for tuning in. We do hope you have a great day and we'll see you in the next podcast.